0: Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies at Tarm University in the UK, a Centre for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at centreforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at ccsdham. The following paper was presented in October 2019 by John Barclay of Tarm University. It was presented as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar Series and is entitled Salvation from What? Some New Testament Perspectives. It's a privilege for me to be part of these uh, interdisciplinary events because I always learn uh, very much more than I, I always get very much more than I give. So I'm looking forward to the, to the conversation and to learning from you theologically. Um, When I devised the title for this lecture, it was a long way, a long time ago. And as you could tell, I I didn't really know what I was going to talk about. So I said, Salvation from what, question marks, and Testament perspectives. It 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 now has a bit more focus, as you will find. Um, But it is still in that general area. Now, I've got a very simple handout, I hope you've got sight of that it's just got some text on it, so nothing more than that, and um, it gives you the sort of structure of where where we're going. Now Simon Oliver, our colleague Simon Oliver, in his excellent lecture two uh, weeks ago, noted that the topic of salvation can be approached from many different angles. I think this is the way you put it, Simon, you can ask salvation for whom, the scope of salvation, or we can ask salvation how, that's the mechanism, if you like, the means of salvation, or we can ask salvation from what, what's the plight, as it were, or we can ask salvation for what. Now, as my title shows, I'm going to focus here on the from what question, although the from what also leads into the for what, uh, uh, because the two obviously intimately related, and I hope I'll be building on the excellent foundation that uh, Simon laid last time. My focus will be on some New Testament texts, as that's where I'm most at home. And I'm going to focus on the topic of death, salvation from death. (coughs) It's not just that I've now got into my sixties, I hope. It's not just that. (laughs) No doubt, this subject has existential significance for us all. The topic is salvation from death, and I'm going to focus on the two greatest theologians of the New Testament, Paul and John. First, a few few preliminary uh, comments. As Simon showed, uh, salvation, Latin, salas, is often described and enacted in the realm of health. That reflects the fact that the basic concept in in salvation is preservation, or rescue which may be from disease or incapacity, but it may be more widely from any kind of danger or threat present or future. Now, I'm not going to conduct here a word study on sozo or soteria, because we're interested in the concept of salvation rather than the word. And the concept of salvation can be expressed in a great range of vocabulary. So in the New Testament, not only verbs like so-zo, but also verbs like um, like ruamai or ex and so on. The basic image in salvation, is or the concept of salvation, is of a comprehensive existential threat and of a divine act of rescue from what has already occurred or what threatens to occur, from which God alone can save. When the church decided to include 27 books in its New Testament canon, it gave theological legitimacy to a considerable range of theologies. There is no single New Testament view on salvation or on any other theological topic. A large range of metaphors for salvation is is deployed in the New Testament. Some of them we might call social metaphors, that is, they're taken metaphors taken from the realm of social interaction. And some of them are what we might call organic. Among the social metaphors, we find salvation described, for instance, as freedom from slavery, as adoption, as inheritance, as justification, which is being put right legally and socially, as, um, as reconciliation, <coughs> As sacrificial atonement, as glory, in as much as glory means honor, uh, even as citizenship. These are all social metaphors for salvation. Among the organic metaphors, we find salvation described as light or sight, as water or drink, as food, most comprehensively as life or new creation. Which is sometimes expressed, as Simon showed, in Acts on Metaphors of Healing. No one metaphor is dominant in the New Testament, and even within single authors like Paul, they're jumbled and mixed, each bringing out different facets of the salvation that's enacted in Christ. Every metaphor also, of course, encodes the plight of. From which salvation saves. Salvation as light or sight figures the plight as darkness or blindness. Salvation as freedom figures the plight as slavery, and so on. If all theological language is inherently and necessarily metaphorical, the New Testament offers a rich store of metaphors which the Christian tradition has explored, developed, and supplemented down centuries. When it comes to the realities from which salvation saves, the New Testament places these within a variety of dimensions, some internal to the human, some what we might call exterior. Sin is the most common description of the internal human dysfunction, the disobedience or rebellious pride that flouts the will and the purposes of God. But if sin is the internal misalignment of the human, its disastrous results are also the danger from which God must save. In this connection, we could list the curse of the law, condemnation, wrath, and death, which will be our main topic. External to the human are the powers that some New Testament texts speak fulsomely about, and some in rather muted terms. The devil or Satan, demonic forces, unclean spirits, The principalities and powers, the god of this age, all of these are external, aggressive powers that threaten humanity and the cosmos in New Testament texts. Configurations of evil that resonate very strongly in some cultures today, (coughs) even if post enlightenment Westerners don't quite know what to do with them. At the very least, they express the fact that we are subject to phenomena and forces outside our control. If salvation is going to be truly comprehensive, it needs to address not only our human propensity to mess things up, but also the dislocations, deficiencies and evils that are beyond our capacity to control or even to understand. I want to focus here on one threat that is, you might say, both internal to the human condition and beyond our power, and that's the all encompassing threat of death. Death is one topic that features in the drama of salvation right across the New Testament, from the Gospels to the book of Revelation. And it's focalized at the heart of the Gospel in the narrative of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Death decay, destruction. These are constantly reflected upon in the New Testament as the ultimate threat to both humanity and the <coughs> As presently constituted, all things come to an end. Our lives, our work, our achievements, our relationships, even eventually Brexit. <laughs> And this is true of the cosmos as a whole. As the New Testament authors say, and as science now confirms, all things are subject to the law of entropy, and even the cosmos as presently constituted has a finite end. Everything is marked by this ultimate limit. Ultimate both in the sense of final and in the sense of most profound. Everything except God. If the New Testament did not grapple with death, it would be seriously deficient in its soteriology. But providentially it does, and we'll focus our attention here on salvation from death, first in Paul and then in the Gospel of John. So let's think about Paul. In the midst of his great discussion of resurrection at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul draws a picture of the apocalyptic battle between God and all anti-God powers. Christ must reign, says Paul, this is your first quotation, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is no friend here on the larger scale of things, however it may seem to those in unendurable suffering. Death is an enemy that thwarts God's ultimate purposes and that must be overcome in order for those plans, God's plans, to come to fruition. There is here no resignation to to death as fate, as the limiting horizon of all reality. Nor note any celebration of death as the escape hatch from the body for the immortal soul. In a strong body soul dualism, the body is a prison or tomb that entraps the soul. So the death of the body is to be welcomed as the release of the soul. And since in this classic Greek dualism the soul is immortal by nature, literally indestructible, the death of the body would be no ultimate threat, only a point of transition for the soul from the body to a better bodiless condition Paul's view is different death mortality decay is the destiny of all reality as presently constituted (coughs) and there is no part of a human that is by nature exempt from death everything about us and everything about the world comes to a shuddering halt unless death is overcome by God. Thanks be to God, says Paul in this chapter, not for bestowing upon us immortal souls, (coughs) but thanks be to God for giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As always for Paul, salvation is Christological and salvation is gift. As Karl Barth argued in his remarkable commentary on 1 Corinthians, the heart of Paul's theology is exposed when he accuses the Corinthians in this chapter of being ignorant of God. Salvation from death is quintessentially a matter not of human survival, but of divine gift. Death faces us with the ultimate question. Either God acts here, or there's nothing at all. (coughs) When's death? How did death become the enemy? None of the New Testament authors are concerned, I think, to give a full etiology of death, although Paul has been read to come close to this in his association of sin and death. Certainly in Romans 5, in the second uh, quotation on your sheet, Paul speaks of sin coming into the world through one man, and through sin, death. And so death spread to all people inasmuch as all sin. That's a famous verse, that, which uh, Augustine grossly misunderstood because he knew it only in Latin, but that's another one. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the Adam story is here clearly at play, and Genesis 3 could be read as tracing the origin of death to Adam's transgression. But Genesis chapters 1 to 3 could also be read in more subtle ways, indicating that the creation, from the beginning, although good, was always at least capable of mortality, even in its original design. When Paul compares Adam and Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, he describes Adam as a man of dust, koikos drawing on the depiction of Adam's creation in Genesis 2 as a living, made, as a living being made from the dust. This is your third creation <clears throat> By contrast, Christ is the heavenly man, the spiritual and life-giving man. Christ is life-giving, not just living. Spiritual pneumaticos, that is, powerful, glorious, and indestructible as opposed to Sukikos, that is, alive, but mortal, weak, and destructible. Moreover, Paul says, we have borne the image of the man of dust, but we will bear the image of the man, of, um, um, we will bear the image of the heavenly man, the man of heaven. In other words, resurrection as indestructible life will not be the same as the life of the original Dust, dusty man, Adam. One could put the matter like this: the creation was from the start mortal in the sense of capable of death, and that mortality became a reality, inevitable and universal in the way of sin. In this light, de- death is both, you might say, inherent in our condition and a tragedy we bring upon ourselves, <coughs> both natural and unnatural both part of what it means to be created and part of what it means to be alienated from God. The the latter negative features of death represent the way that our creatureliness has become the site of our rebellion against God, tied up with that rebellion to such a degree that death has about it an element of judgment. But whether or not it is infected with those tragic dimensions, death is always the sign that God has something more store. What gives Paul the confidence of victory over death is an event, the resurrection of Jesus. Again on your sheet, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. Resurrection is for Paul something wholly different from the survival of the soul. It is the raising up of corpses. The raising up of corpses. Literally, in Greek, the anastasis tone necron, raising up of corpses. And something that one would assume in the Jewish apocalyptic tradition to be a collective event, not an individual event. But it's much more than the resuscitation of the dead. It marks, in fact, the turning point of the ages, the beginning of the new age as radical a transformation, as a new creation. Paul clearly regards it as odd that only Jesus has been raised thus far, and he takes it to be a collective event in a certain sense, because he links this resurrection to the newness of life that is shared by those baptized into Christ. And he links the resurrection of Christ to their own resurrection which he expected to be soon. Christ's resurrection is, as he puts it, the first fruits of the harvest, the beginning and the sign of the whole. Now, it's important not to domesticate Paul's theology at this point or to reduce the resurrection of Jesus to merely a claim about the identity of Christ. (coughs) About the identity of Christ. In Paul's cosmic perspective, The wheel of all reality has been turning irrevocably from sin to death, from disobedience to decay, with all creation, as as Paul puts it, frustrated by submission to a law of decay from which it cannot escape and and under which it groans. The resurrection of Christ marks the pivotal turning point of all history, indeed of all reality. The moment when the wheel, if you like, starts to turn in the other direction. From sin to righteousness. From death (coughs) to life. By the power of grace, a new reality is born. What Paul does not hesitate to call a new creation. But resurrection is not just a repetition of creation, nor a restoration of its original conditions. Resurrection elevates all that has been made to, if you like, a new level, where decay and death no longer exist and no longer could exist, even as a potential. (coughs) Creation is liberated from its slavery to to decay, which is, in some sense, a necessary limitation in all that has been made so far. Paul speaks of the future as entailing a spiritual body, pneumaticon, so And the word so <laughs> makes us think of bodies rather like ours. But Paul is at pains to point out the difference between the present body, which is weak, inglorious, and mortal, and the future body, which is immortal, and glorious, and endued with power. (coughs) In effect, Paul, I think, blocks off, blocks off literalistic extrapolations from one kind of body to the other. We shall all be changed, is the motto of 1 Corinthians 15. Lest lest we think that the raising of corpses sounds like a resuscitation or reconstitution into the same. At the heart of Paul's good news is the death and resurrection of Christ, and at the heart of salvation is the overcoming of death in all its dimensions. In fact, Paul sees the new reality already pressing into the old, such that participation in Christ means not only sharing in his dying, but also experiencing in the Spirit what Paul calls newness of life, and what the later Pauline tradition in Colossians and Ephesians will dub being raised with Christ. (coughs) The Spirit is the presence of the new creation in the midst of the old, such that the believer lives in a kind of double reality, one operative within the other. As Colossians puts it, again on your sheet, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Note that expression, Christ who is your life. There's a powerful sense throughout the Pauline corpus that the Christian existence is suspended entirely from the resurrection life of Christ, so that all that is good and worthwhile in the believers' present lives is the product of Christ's life, and therefore destined to endure beyond death. Famously, you may remember in um, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul downgrades all the spectacular gifts of the Spirit, such as knowledge and prophecy, depicting them as partial things that will come to an end. But faith, hope, and love remain, and the greatest of these is love. And by remain, he last forever. <coughs> faith and hope, because everything eternal is dependent on the recreative power of God. An immortal soul, we might recall, needs no faith. All it needs to do is survive, which it inevitably must. But a mortal creation lives by faith because it hangs for its existence on the life-giving resurrected Christ and expresses that dependence in faith and hope. And love? Love remains because love is the self-giving power of God that brought the world into existence and will raise it to its completed state in Christ. (coughs) Love endures because to participate in love is to participate in the very centre of the eternal purposes of God. Let's move now from Paul to John. That's why I get a bit nervous because I've got a colleague in the room that knows far more about John than me. John has transposed early Christian eschatology into a different key, and he's reflected long and hard on the participation of Christ in God and the participation of believers in Christ. John's Gospel gravitates towards the organic metaphors we mentioned earlier. Salvation as light, water, food. But he wraps all these up within the macro category of life. If If Jesus is the water, he is the living water. If he is the bread, he is the bread of life. The prologue of the Gospel delves back into the very first verse of Genesis and finds there, before the creation of light or anything else, the Word and the creation of life. Remember, it never says in Genesis, and God created life. It never says that, does it? But John says that must be the first thing that happens. What has come into being through him, that is, through the Word, says John, was life. And in the life was the life. So first you start with life. As if to match this, the conclusion of the first edition of the Gospel, that is before the supplement we call chapter 21, So, at the end of chapter 20 sums up the intent of the whole Gospel by saying, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have Life, (coughs) life in his name. In other words, from start to finish, from the prologue to the final verse, the Gospel sums up salvation as life. It may seem ironic, then, that at the heart of the Gospel of John, as in the synoptics, lies the death of Jesus. That the one who brings life dies. John is, of course, highly conscious of this irony. And he speaks of the grain of wheat that dies in order to bear fruit. But he also makes clear that that Jesus deliberately lays down his life. For this reason, says Jesus in John uh, uh, 10, the Father loves me because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. If Jesus himself has the power to take it up again, this suggests that for John, Jesus' death on the cross is not ultimately the loss of his self. He enters the human condition all the way down to death, but he enters it with a power and a life that is sourced in God, given by the Father, such that Jesus' life is also at the same time indestructible. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. Jesus' life is dependent on the life of the Father, but in, that participate, it, but in that dependence he participates in a life that is not ultimately subject to death. Thus the death and resurrection of Jesus in John's Gospel is a moment of glory, a moment of the revelation of the glory of God, as much as it is a turning from death to life. It is not, as in Paul, the turning of the ages from the old to the new, but the participation of the eternal God in the depths of the human condition, so that humanity might participate through Christ in the the eternal life, which is the life of God. At the deepest level, Jesus does not give his life away in the sense of letting it be destroyed. He gives his life into the human condition so that his life might be shared i am the living bread that came down from heaven whoever eats of this bread will live forever and the bread that i will give for the life of the world is my flesh as in paul death in john is not just mortality It's also tainted with sin, judgment, and condemnation. Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, to die for the nation, not just the nation, but for all the scattered children of God. His death is an entering into the hour of darkness, into the judgment of the world, a confrontation with the ruler of this world. In (laughs) some sense, Jesus' death absorbs absorbs this sin and darkness, and takes on this judgment, such that those who believe in Jesus and participate in his life have, in John's perspective, already passed through judgment. Very truly, I say to you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death. To life. That's chapter 5, verse 24. Hence the famous John 3:16. God loved the world in such a way, who knows means they're not to such a degree, but in such a way, God loved the world in such a way that he gave his only Son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. Or as Jesus puts it elsewhere in relation to his sheep, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Salvation in John is receiving this life from Jesus, or better, participating in the life of Jesus, which is itself derived from the Father. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also (coughs) the Son gives life to whomever, he wills," says Jesus. Now we might, for clarity's sake, and this is oversimplified, but we might compare Paul and John like this. I'm going to, I'm going to put it up on, on the board. Paul's dominant framework is what we might call sequential or chronological. Okay, Paul operates with a timeline, and the eschaton is up here as well. And what he sees happening in Christ is the, in, is the, is this, is the beginning of the new age, of the new creation, which, as it were, creates this overlap period in which we now live, in which the believer, still part of the old creation, is also now part of this. the new creation. What I want, there's much more I can say about that, but the main point is this, that there's a kind of sequential framework Death has ruled in the world all the way up to the time of the resurrection of Jesus. And from that point in time, which is a new eschatological reality, a new indestructible life has begun. On this sequential framework, believers participate in the resurrection life of Christ. Spatial metaphors are used here, being in Christ, baptized into Christ, but the spatial metaphors are placed within the chronological frame of a change of eons. Paul's mind just thinks in terms of a chronological change of eons. Now, John, very hard to, t- to depict John, uh, 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 but if I were to put an oversimplified contrast, I would say John operates first and foremost with a spatial rather than a chronological framework. Eternal life does not, for John, begin at the resurrection because eternal life is the eternal life of God shared by the Father with the Son from before all time. It's as if John said, if it's eternal, it can't begin at a moment in time. When does the eternal start? Dumb question, isn't that? It oh, doesn't have a star. <coughs> if, I were to put, if I were to put it, I would put it spatially in this way, okay? The, the outer sphere is the sphere of God. It encompasses all, all realities. But inside, as it were, with a hard edge, because it's partly become alienated from God, is the world. It's of course encapsulated within the reality that God has made. It's not, it's not in it's originating from God, but it has become alienated from God. And what happens in Christ, as it were, is the invasion, the, the coming into the world of the eternal. It's the entering of the eternal into the temporal cosmos. So hence the dominant spatial conceptualities of John in John of Jesus coming into the world, down from heaven. And believers participating in the life of Christ. Believers in Christ are born for John from above. Remember that famous double entendre, I again, or from above. They come to participate in a life that is indestructible and always has been. A life brought into the world in the coming of Christ. This is the conceptuality of the famous bread from heaven discourse in John 6, with Jesus figured as the bread that has come down from heaven <coughs> metaphor, come down from heaven as the bread of life. Your ancestors, here's another quote on your sheet, your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This, talking of himself, is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Ordinary human life is now, if connected to Christ, connected to another dimension. Life on on a different plane. A life given by Christ and constituted by, as it were, feeding off Christ. The incarnation ensures that this new life does not hover above earthly reality disconnected from it. Only gestured towards it through earthly things. Rather, it becomes fully immanent within reality, where signs point through themselves, not away from themselves. But it is at the same time a transcendent reality, not reducible to human terms and earthly finitude. When Jesus said that he came that you may have life and have it, how to translate this, James? Have it perison. Not only it, have it abundantly. I mean, came, you know the famous, I came, you may have life and have it abundantly. That. I came, you may have life and have it caiperson. It's almost like, and have it extra. Yeah? He didn't mean, Jesus did not mean, I came and you should have an extra special enjoyment in life. He meant, or he meant also, I came that your life may now have a depth dimension that it did not have before. It is plugged in, we might say, to use a modern electrical metaphor, it is plugged into a life source that is indestructible because it is divine. At the middle of John's Gospel stands the raising of Lazarus, <coughs> which is the sign of the life that is ultimately not defeated by death. It's the scene for Jesus' most momentous I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Again, I've got this on my sheet. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who believes, lives and believes in me will never die. And when you first read that, you think, what the heck is that saying? Even though they die, they will live. Because the life Jesus is talking about here is is at a depth that cannot be touched by human mortality. Even if they die, in human mortal terms, they live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, because we're talking about that life, life in its extra dimension. Life extra. True life the life from above. And that is truly indestructible. By the time we get to the resurrection of Jesus in John 20, everything that can and should be said about resurrection and life has already been said. The narrative in John 20, I think, is comparatively under-interpreted because it has already been interpreted in the preceding 19 chapters. But what's clear here is what what Thomas recognizes in his acclamation, my Lord and my God. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that his life always ever shimmered with a transcendent reality, an eternal life derived from God, a life that diffused glory all through his life and even in his death. If Jesus is the resurrection, it is because he is the life the life given by the Father and shared with the Father, and the life now given to those who participate in Christ. This is a life shared by believers now and not just awaited for the future. John's eschatology is famously the most realized in the New Testament. Future dimensions still remain, but the focus is on the present and and on the eternal life that is already now. You remember Paul's famous trilogy you mentioned earlier, of faith, hope, and love? If John was asked for his trilogy, I think he would say, faith, knowledge, and love. Faith, that believing you may have life in his name. Knowledge, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you but also love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The Father's life is expressed supremely in the Father's love. (coughs) And that is what generated the coming of the Son and the self-giving of the Son for the world. The fruit that is generated by abiding in the vine, John 15, is the fruit of love. And this is surely one of the features of that extra, that Parison, that John 10, 10 is talking about. The Johannine epistles draw out in fulsome terms what's already clear concerning love in the gospel. The eternal life that believers participate already in this life is not some ethereal, privatized phenomenon. It is the spreading of the love of God into the everyday life of a community in a broken and, transfigured, in a broken and misfigured disfigured world. So let me finish with some theological reflections. What would it mean for us to believe and speak about salvation as salvation from death in the light of these resources from Paul and John? From the second century onwards, Christian theology has been, I think, too easily distracted by arguments and speculations concerning the afterlife, its mechanisms and its conditions. In their concern to rebuff the Gnostic downgrading of creation and the body, second century theologians such as Irenaeus spent... I think excessive effort defending a notion of resurrection as the reconstitution of earthly bodies. And they failed to give enough attention to Paul's sense of an utter and ungraspable transformation. In the same vein, I think modern attempts to support ecological responsibility on the ground <laughs> that this earth is what God will rescue and reconstitute seems to me seriously mistaken. since everything we experience in this present time-space continuum is limited by the laws of entropy in physics and its biological life subject to the laws of decay and death necessitated by evolution it makes to me no sense at all to speak of a future indestructible world where we will till the soil that we have preserved and enjoy the air that we've kept clean if what the New Testament is talking about is a genuinely eternal world it will not operate by any of the rules of physics or biology that govern our present form of existence the problem in cultivating these fanciful and unhelpfully literalistic images of the future is that we invite a theological reaction which would prefer, as many Christians prefer, not to speak of a future at all. A Church of England priest the other day told me she's quite content to think of her life finishing at death, since what Jesus brings is life lived to the full in the present. Like the Christian age slogan, she might have said, we believe in life before death. That, it seems to me, is is profoundly unsatisfactory as a Christian theology. But I can see where it's come from in reaction to crude speculations about what life might look like in the, frankly, unimaginable future. I'm a strong believer in a theology of ecology, but I wouldn't base it on the, in, these, in, this, in these terms. I think there's quite other, much stronger theological terms bases for an ecological it's not about, not about preserving this air clean, because guys are going to breathe there in, in the future, eternal world. Of course, eschatology itself can be theologically problematic, if it's used as the opium of the people, if it undercuts Christians' will to ameliorate this world, and if it encourages us into useless speculation about when the end will come. I think it's likely that the first generation of Christians, Paul included, thought that the end must be very near, even within their own lifetimes. They had bumped up, as it were, against the ultimate reality, the reality of God in Christ, and it was natural for them to think that ultimate meant final in chronological terms. For them, the proximity of the ultimate must mean the proximity of the end of history. John, as we've seen, is less confined by this chronological sequential framework. For him, eternal life is not something to be waited for and just around the corner, but something that has always been present in the life of God and is shared by those who participate in Christ by faith, knowledge, and love. (coughs) It was along such lines that Barth and then Bultmann were able to give a theological interpretation (coughs) to the imminent eschatology of the New Testament, after that imminent expectation was rediscovered and recognised as a theological embarrassment at the end of the 19th century. Massively important theological task that Bart and Boltman did. How do we deal with the New Testament, which expects the end very soon? Theologically, what the New Testament is talking about, they insisted, is not the end as another moment in time, because how can the eternal be a moment in time? But the end as the ultimate meaning of all time. The eternal is not the infinite continuation of time, but a a dimension radically other than time itself. What was at stake, for Barth, at least, was the radical otherness of God. If eternal life is the life of God, it cannot be boxed within a sequence of chronological events. So what is salvation from death most fundamentally about? It seems to me absolutely essential to Christian theology that, it, that we can speak of hope beyond death and that we do not settle for the Christian age life before death in a merely present and immanent form. If death, our death, the death of our cosmos, is the end point of all that God has done and is doing in the world, then it seems to me <coughs> we would have far too diminished a view of God. What concerns me here is less whether I personally, in any form recognizable to myself, have an existence beyond death, but whether God's work in and through this rather miserable entity, that is me, will be of love, whether God's work in and through this rather miserable entity which is me, will be of lasting and eternal significance. Nonetheless, because I believe, as Paul said, that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me, I'm bound to think that God's undeserved commitment to me is not going to end by God abandoning me at death. If death is, in a total sense, the end... If it is an accident or a fate beyond which there is nothing, it would be an accident or fate ultimately greater than God. It seems to me that any proper belief in God as God, belief in, if you like, the omnipotence of God, must hold God to be greater than death. The resurrection, which seems to me, the resurrection of Jesus, which seems to me to be a non negotiable part of Christian has imprinted that truth into history. If God does not resolve reality beyond death, injustice is never answered, the good will never triumph, and all that is incomplete and imperfect in this world will never be brought to its intended end. In that sense, Christian hope and the Christian affirmation of the defeat of death is central to Christian theology. This is to be sure a matter of faith, not sight. As we have noted, faith is central to both Paul and John, because what we're talking about here, the defeat of death, is quintessentially an act that only God can perform. Here, if you like, most evidently of all, salvation is something done to us, something we receive as a gift, something utterly beyond our capacity and beyond our imagination. If it is not that, it is not salvation, merely a tinkering with the conditions of the possible. The New Testament authors, I think, face this squarely. Yes, resurrection, life beyond death, victory over death, is something utterly, incomprehensibly impossible. At death, we face human finitude in its starkest possible form. And from death, we believe that God does the impossible and can create life. So what does this mean for our life before death? And I'm sorry if this last part of the lecture seems a bit homiletical. It's exactly at this point, it seems to me, that good theology can't avoid becoming existential. Both Paul and John, as we've seen, regard the present as the arena where the life of the risen Christ, newness of life, new creation, life from above, eternal life, is already at work, even in the midst of our finite lives and this finite world. Already there is the fruit of the Spirit, already the fruit of the vine, and above all, already there is love. Marred as it is by our sin and limited as it is by our death, love never fails. It is the life of God that already pulses through our mortal bodies. What is of value in our lives, what is of God, what is a spark of the eternal fire of love, is not and cannot be merely temporary and time-bound. What is of value, and God alone can judge what that is, What is of value is held in the hand of God. And as Jesus says in John, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here in our very finitude, including our weakness, our suffering, and our mortality, God brings to fruit, we believe, some features of his eternal purposes for our characters and our lives. Something of eternal value that cannot be and will not be frustrated by death. God alone will make clear what that is. That's one of the functions of New Testament language concerning the Judgment Day. But if we're connected at all to the life of God in Christ, we have to hope that there will be some smidgen of lasting value in what the Spirit is doing in our lives. For this reason, it seems to me, we do not have to cling on to life with the desperation of those who are terrified at the thought of total extinction or who reckon that even a short extension of life is better than none. In Christ there is, it seems to me, a readiness to die and a capacity for what they call a good death in the faith that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God in Christ. In that faith, long life is not a a desideratum in itself. I wonder sometimes whether Christians should be so eager to embrace what are sometimes wildly expensive medical prolongations of life. (coughs) At the same time, we believe that whatever the conditions of our life, even in ill health, in disability, and in dementia, God can work something beautiful in a life even if only in the ways that others learn love in responding to our weakness. For that reason, euthanasia, as the willful ending of an unwelcome life, seems to me theologically problematic. What we ultimately hope, and hope in faith, is that God will cherish something of us, and something of what Christ has done in our lives, and will wrap that up into his eternal future, whatever unimaginable form that might take. Ultimately, of course, it is not about us. It's about God. But we happen to believe that God showed his love for us, even us, in Christ, and has chosen, for reasons only of love, not to be God without us. So if there is salvation from death in some form for us, It is only because the love of God in Christ will never falter or fail. Thank you very much.